From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer with my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hello. Hey, Aaron. Hey, you guys. Aaron, who's on the uh, who's on the program this week? Uh, this week I talked to Theo Padnos. He has a book out called Blindfold that is about his experiences being kidnapped, um, held in captivity, and tortured in Syria. He was there in the capacity of being a journalist, maybe without the proper preparation and precautions to be doing so, and found himself in a very dangerous uh, place. Um, He wrote about these experiences in uh, the New York Times Magazine in the few years after it happened, and then now has this book out about it. I was really interested in his experiences. They're, They're quite different than... A lot of war reporters and, and um, foreign correspondents we've talked to on the show. He's someone who went into a very dangerous place without a ton of money, without a ton of resources, just to see what would happen. And something really bad happened. So um, I think it was it was a really interesting thing to talk about, you know, that contrasts with some of the experiences of other people we've had in the show who've been to uh, some of the same places in the world. Man, that was an incredibly intriguing setup. I cannot wait for this episode. Thank you. It's a good one. Uh, it's brought to you by MailChimp. They bring you all these great episodes with all kinds of people, and they've done it for years, and we thank them. Thank you, MailChimp. And now here's Aaron with Theo Padnos. Welcome, Theo Padnos. Thank you for having me. Where, uh, where am I speaking to you from? I'm in lovely Woodstock, Vermont. Um, I'm guessing that most people want to talk to you about being kidnapped. So I'm going to take the opposite route. And I want to talk <laughs> okay, to you good. about... I do want to get there, but I want to understand how you got there. And part of the way you got there is your career in journalism. So right. at what point in your life did you realize you wanted to be a writer? You know, I went to graduate school. I did a PhD in comparative literature and I learned to hate writing and reading, for that matter, because this is like this horrible academic exercise. But um, when I graduated from this PhD program, I went off to Yemen. I worked for a newspaper, and I discovered that in third world countries, 
They have a need for accurate news and people who can tell the truth about the world in a legible kind of way. So I felt that I could help the people in Sana'a make sense of the world. And I mean, I listen, I was, I had written a book even before I left uh, for Yemen. It was an unsuccessful book about teaching in a prison here in Woodstock. And I wanted to do better, you know, it was like a big failure in my life. And I was, and then I wrote another book about studying the Quran in Yemen. And this was not a huge failure, but still kind of a failure. So finally in uh, 2012, after two book failures and some magazine writing, I was a total failure in that I could not get a single like 200 word commission from the worst magazines that you would never read. I never read. I was begging these dumb publications, please, please give me 200 words. And they're like, no, no, we couldn't care less about you or your dumb ideas. And um, so I was like, I don't need you people anyway. I'm going to go write my, my thing on my own and then I'll find somebody to publish it. And I don't even care if I don't because this is what I want to do with my life. You know, in fact, without realizing it, all of these rejections and non-existence of my career had really brought me to a dangerous place in which I was willing to take risks that I ought not have taken. You wouldn't have taken if you were in like a sound state of mind and body. You would preserve and cherish your life more than I did when I got in a car with these fucking lunatics and said, please take me into Syria. So... I feel like on this show, uh, one of the things that we've been criticized for is that a lot of people's story on this show is I went to an Ivy League school and then I was an intern at Harper's Magazine <laughs> and I met a big editor. And, um, you know, here is the list of uh, 25 uh, New Yorker features I wrote subsequently. Well, yeah. So I, I admire those guys. They got to do something to get there. Well, I, I agree with our critics that that is an unusual outcome from pursuing a career in journalism and potentially a career more like yours is more typical. Um, you write some articles, you write some books, maybe one gets a little attention, maybe it doesn't. So, you know, digging back into that part of your life, um, like tell me about your first book. Um, and you know, it sounds like with both of these first two books you wrote and actually now your third book blindfold, um, you took one of your own experiences and used it as a springboard um, for a book. So what did that entail in the first couple times you tried it? I mean, in the first book was about my experience teaching uh, like kid killers in a prison here in Vermont. I mean, they were, they were like prep school kids. This was in, uh, in the year 2000. And I felt that nobody in the media had reckoned with this urge to just slaughter and kill that was coming into these kids' brains. Anyway, I was going to write a great book about the whole saga and why these kids were murdering each other and you know, murdering their moms and dads and their schoolmates. And it was just after Columbine, and I had this great idea, and I went down to New York and pitched it to Tina Brown at Talk Merrimax. She said, okay, I'll send you a big book contract. And I'm like, great. <laughs> and then I actually had to write the thing, and I'm like, oh, my God, I can't, I can't, I'm not, I can't do this. Uh, no. So I struggled with it for several years and produced a mediocre, no, worse than mediocre. I produced black marks on white page, which they called the book. But it is, it, it, it's out there. Anyway, I really regretted writing this whole thing. And I just regretted the whole thing. In order to clear my mind of that trauma, I went off to Yemen. So this idea of 
I'm going to go to Yemen. I'm going to go to religious school. Um, if you remove the, and I'm going to write a book about it part, I think that that's a pretty typical experience of a class of people that I, I guess I would call seekers. It's also the experience by which uh, a small number of Americans were radicalized and, and joined uh, groups. So I guess I'm curious, like at that time in your life, how you looked at your own motivation for doing that? Was it, I'm going to go write this book and I need to go have this experience? Or was it, I want this experience and maybe I can fund it with a book? No, I wasn't interested in funding anything. I mean, I was happy to live on nothing at all. And I did. Um, I wasn't particularly interested in, in having a spiritual experience so that I could get closer to God. But I did want to understand the young men who were having these experiences and getting closer to God. What actually is a spiritual experience in Islam like? I mean, I know it's beautiful. You see it every day in Yemen. I mean, in Sana'a, the capital, you, you, the people love it. And it is gorgeous. And it's like, what is happening to these people? And how do you get there? And I wanted to write about that. Like, we all took in college, or many of us English majors took a college called The Bible as Literature, where you discover the poetry and the, the literary devices that make this thing a work of art. But we don't know anything like that about the Quran, particularly because it's written in Arabic. But... I, as a literary studies major, I felt that I could write about the Quran in such a way so that we understood the poetry better and how it could move you. And what is it like when you are moved by this book? And no journalists are doing that kind of thing. And I thought, but the mosque is on every corner in my neighborhood. I could go to any one of 20 and they would be happy to teach me. And so why not? I was struck by poetic quality of some of your descriptions of your experiences in in blindfold and i'm curious uh, whether it's with the book about being in a religious school or when you've written about the time that you were kidnapped in, in captivity these poetic images do those come to you while they're happening and you need to capture them for future use no um i was moved to tears often in prison by the dilemma and the, the circumstances of my fellow prisoners, many of whom were killed um, for practicing the wrong religion. And these people I felt were, were so brave and heroic and they were clinging to the tenderest, thinnest, frailest little thread of life. And I was moved by the manner in which they did that and because I myself was doing that. And so, yeah, I mean, this experience, like it went into my soul and my effort as a writer when I tried to like tell my story was to re bring those moments alive for the reader in such a way that was meaningful for him too so they could see what we all went through but I'm certainly not like ever there were times when my editor um at Scribner's name is Colin Harrison was like are you writing or, or are you just telling the story you know he, he anything that sounds like writing you got to get rid of which was mm -hmm. good advice I think I I thought at the time and continue to think um, yeah, because I'm trying to convey the desperation of life within a prison in Syria and the, uh, the faith that that induces, like the proximity that brings you closer to God. I remember reading, um, you, you wrote about your experiences, I think in 2014 in the New York times magazine, mm -hmm. but I can remember when I read it the first time and the actual uh, events of you leaving Turkey and going into Syria and then realizing that you'd been kidnapped, 
I don't know, it's maybe two or three paragraphs in the New York Times Magazine story. Yeah. In the book, I would say it's a road trip novella um, <laughs> that has a lot of really memorable scenes that are not violent. I almost feel like if you were going to have to pare your book down, you could publish the like my Syrian road trip right before the bad right. stuff starts happening. Right. Um, in going from that thumbnail image to the high res image, mm. how did you decide what details were part of the story and what details veered into writing? Right. Um, I mean, I'm trying to tell a story about a person who's attracted to dangerous places and people. And I think we all have that within us. I wanted to bring the, my readers along. So I selected those those details that we all have in common. What do we have in common? Like I wrote about my mom because we all got moms. Um, I wrote about missing her. I wrote about sort of disregarding her advice, which we've all done. Uh, because I'm trying to invite you along on a journey that you yourself might have taken. In terms of recounting your experiences, you know, there's a whole parallel story about people who were working to free you. Did you have to report out this story at all to understand the things that happened that you weren't a part of? Unfortunately, no. I, I Perhaps I should have reported out this story of my rescue because it's a dramatic story. There was a whole bunch of people at the Atlantic Monthly magazine that were working under David Bradley, basically like volunteers, although some official employees of his organization too, they they pitched in and my mom pitched in and the Qatari uh, UN ambassador, whose name is Alia Athani, pitched in. And, um, um, but did I report out this story? No, <laughs> because I really um, wasn't trying to tell about my rescue so much. I'm really more trying to tell about kind of, um, you know, my own spiritual experience in prison, like how... How did this experience change me, and what did I learn? And you know, what are they? What are they trying to do in their prisons? They really want to have, affect a psychological transformation of their prisoners, and they succeed of anybody under their control, and they are succeeding. And it's like it's an interesting process. I think we don't know very much about it, so I wanted to describe that process of 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 um, being prepared to leave this life and go on to the next one, and thinking, you know what, it might be better over there. You, the person who you are, at least at the start of the book, is pretty skeptical, I would say, of uh, the cliche war reporter. Um, yeah, I, I have no interest in those people. Yet, I think you're also very willing to be self-critical in the book. Like, this is not a book that downplays the naiveness and, and stupidity of getting in the taxi in the first place. Right. I'm curious, like what it was like writing critically about yourself in that way and how you pushed yourself to be honest on things that were not flattering to you or your story of which there are some. You know, actually I I'm, I'm proud of this, these mistakes in a way in a perverted yeah. kind of way because I learned something from them. It's like, I wouldn't do it again. I'm not so dumb that I would do it again. Although some people are. Um, and I feel that I just, I have had a, um, an educational experience and I want to share my educational experience. So I don't mind saying, yes, in the beginning I was dumb and now I'm smarter. Have any of the people you encountered in Syria during this time read the book? What, um, what kind of the reaction do you expect the book will get? <laughs> they don't read English. These guys they okay, don't no, speak no, no English, no, no but, um, um, Arabic translation plan to the book. 
I don't think so. But um, while I was in my cell in Syria, about a year and a half into it, they gave me a pen and a piece of paper. And I was very keen to write about what was going on. And they were curious about what I was writing. And I couldn't tell them, I'm writing about what assholes, you crazy, lunatic, psychopathic killers you are. So I said, I'm writing about my girlfriend. Um, you know, in America, we have girlfriends. And uh, it was a long time ago. She was she was 15. They're like, yes, that's good, 15. Uh, I was 16. Uh, okay. And what was she like? And I gave them, gave them the descriptions. And, you know, they're supposed to be very pious and celibate young men. But they were into the descriptions of me having a girlfriend. Well, I wanted to ask you actually about the, the pad and the pen. So the first time you had a chance to take thoughts out of your head and put them down, what was that prose like? Did you start writing it as a book, notes? This was interesting. Very early on, they came in and they the guy was like, write down your name. And um, he took the pen, but not the not the paper. And the next guy came in a few days later, left me the pen. So for a few days, I had a pen and paper and I tried to write a story about a person who'd wandered into a like a Mayan or a Central American kind of village and gotten involved in some kind of uh, ceremony in which the the uh, the people turned out to be the villagers turned out to be like savages and they wanted to kill him. Anyway, it was a stupid derivative, like meaningless drivel thing that I wrote because I did not understand what I was going through. And I was trying to write as if I was Paul Thru or Paul Bowles or some person who has a misadventure in the Arab world, but I didn't understand what it meant for me. And it took me like a year and a half to begin to understand, at which point I couldn't stop writing. Mm. And it was it was like good. I was very, I was into it and it flowed and... You know, it's not like I would recommend if you, you're blocked in your MFA course and you need to go out and figure out how to get tortured for a year and a half. And like, I just, I just had an encounter with, with death and I, it was a prolonged encounter with death. And from this encounter, I started to realize like what, what um, I need to document what I've seen. I need, and I need to make this as compelling and as immediate as I possibly can so that people will be interested to understand what's happening here. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Calling all female runners, it's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why Milk? 
Dairy Milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. If you think about that breakthrough you had where you ceased to be Paul Thoreau and became <laughs> yourself, um, I wonder if there was anything that you just remember or what you feel like you changed that allowed you to move into your own voice. Well, I guess it was that I, I began to understand um, all the terrorist organizations, the big religious organizations in Syria, what are they trying to do? They are trying to effect a psychological transformation of the population at large, trying to reconcile them, them that population to God to, so that they leave the um, disbelief and uh, like the idolatry, they call it, of life under the Assad regime in which they believe people worship Bashar Assad. You should turn away from Assad and turn away from your value system of questing after status in this culture, which often means licking the boots of the Syrian officials. You should repudiate all of that and turn to God. They want to effect like a, this kind of spiritual transformation of the population. How do they do this? They, uh, with violence. It's like in Flannery O'Connor. They hit you over the head and then they, they, you don't know where you are for days and days and days. You become totally disoriented and you drift and you begin looking back over your life and you begin to wonder, am I going to die? Well, a lot of people around you are dying. It's not just the prisoners. I mean, there's bombs falling. It's a time of death over there in Syria. So, um, yeah, you have this close encounter with death and you think, um, how should I live my life? And what, what they tell you uh, in prison is you should live your life by the Quran. Anyway, I began to understand that um, the the purpose of this prison is to affect a is to send you on a spiritual voyage in which you quest after the, the how you should live your life and then you wake up with the right answer. Of course, I woke up with the wrong answer. My answer was like, I want to get away from these lunatics and tell the truth about them. But um, anyway, I, I um, at like deep, deep into my experience, I wanted to tell the story of the other prisoners and the whole society that was undergoing this spiritual transformation where they're repudiating their past selves. They get new names. They get, they, you know, they leave their old work. They sometimes leave their families and they wake up as new people. They're like born again and they are, um, they're ready to die. This is what they're doing to the children. It's like when you're born again, you're close to God. You're like, I'd rather be up there. I have to live out just a few more days here and I'm ready to go. So send me, you know, and that, that, population when it is in that mood it is a dangerous population they are ready to kill and be killed as they say and they want this to happen so anyway i wanted to write about this 
And um, yeah, I, I, I saw it happening around me every day. I saw the Jebatanusu people inflicting this on my fellow prisoners, their citizens. And I wanted to write a story about how this can happen to a whole society where you bring them, you, you, like thousands of people at once, you invite them to repudiate the world of here and now and to embrace the world to come. Knowing that you wanted to write about that, I think the events of the book are maybe nine years ago, Ish now? I, I mean, it, between 2012 and 2014 is what I'm writing about. Okay, so seven years ago. Yeah. There was a whole raft of other journalists who wrote about your story and about the entire group of, of Western prisoners, mm-hmm. some of whom you encountered. What was it like to see other people writing about your story, knowing that you still had a story you wanted to tell that was about the same events? I was like, nice try. I, I, swear, I, I just felt that they didn't get it. I don't know. I don't want to say mean things about other people, but I, how could they get it? It's like, how, could, how can you understand that? I, um, I feel especially close with Kayla Mueller and um, Stephen Sotloff and James Foley and Peter Kasich, the other American ISIS hostages. They were held in the same facility that I was in, this Aleppo Eye Hospital, but not even in the same cell, but not quite at the same time. The same guards, the same fucking tortures, I'm sure the starvation, the insults, um, they all went through the same thing. And they, like nobody knows their story and they of course cannot tell their story because they're not alive. So um, it's like, yeah, there was a lot of of writing about what these people went through, but I don't, I think relatively little understanding of what it, what it meant for them. Like, no, no, how can you know? Good try. Uh, What was the genesis of from that New York Times Magazine story to now the book coming out? Um, Well, when I first got out of prison, I was keen to tell the basics in the New York Times. And so I did that. Then I met this documentary filmmaker guy named David Chiskal who said, hey, um, why don't we make a documentary? That was great. I had a lovely time running around being filmed. Um, And then I came to a time when I'm like, now what? And I, I... I um I actually wanted to I still want to publish this novel that I wrote in the prison in Syria um but all the publishers were like novel Theo <laughs> tell no you're a journalist no so um yeah so they said write a nonfiction account and I actually tried for probably two or three years to get this thing off the ground but I didn't really even two or three years after my experience I didn't know, understand its meaning. Like, what did it mean for me? And how can I tell the story? It took me a long time to just, you know, put the words down on paper and develop an, a plot for my tale. What, what kind of things did I want to emphasize? So, yeah, it, it was a long process. And, and um, as the other people were telling their stories, I wished that I had one to compete and be out there, but I, I didn't. What was the hardest part to write for you? The hardest part for me was I had an easy time telling about my adventure, as you point out, with the kidnappers at first. I'm traveling around Syria. I don't know that they've that I've been kidnapped. I'm in their car. They have the gun. They have the handcuffs. And I'm thinking these guys are my buddies. Now, that was easy to tell because it really happened. It's all true. And I re- recounted one episode after the next and found it fun to write about. Then there came a point where I like crossed through the looking glass and went into Al-Qaeda land and was properly tortured and woke up in, in a really uh, bizarro parallel world of Al-Qaeda um, values and procedure. And I didn't quite know how to describe that in a way that 
um, would make it like the people who live there are having a lovely time. I can't make it just, it's not just a world of cruelty and wickedness, one person to the next. Everybody in in these um, war zones is having a proper spiritual experience and that they are coming more deeply connected to one another, to themselves and to God. You know, it's really a proper spiritual experience in Islam. And they write about it, they talk about it, and it's it's authentic and it does transform you. Yeah, I mean, this is difficult to describe in, in writing. It's like, but I, you know, hopefully I was able to bring some reality to that in my book. I really enjoyed the book. Mm. Is it strange as someone who went into this experience feeling like a failure in your career <laughs> on some level to now have a book? I, I have no idea how the book's selling or whatever, but a lot of people I know are talking about it. It, it seems well, like a major, re- major <laughs> well, release. It's, no. it's certainly the biggest <laughs> book of your career. Um, yeah. what's, what's that like to sort of have the worst thing that happened to you lead to a thing that maybe is good in certain ways? Um, well, if you're asking if I feel like a success, the answer is no, but I'll tell you that what did happen to me when I emerged from prison, I came back to the United States. I saw my mom and I'm like, wow, I love this woman. She's great. And then they, I had cousins who were having a wedding in New Jersey and I had to stop at some other cousins in Connecticut. And I'm like, oh my God, Connecticut. This is a gorgeous, beautiful place. I played tennis. Everybody was, my cousins were beautiful people. They were so gracious and loving to me. It was that, that, um, like the, the happiness that you might imagine would come if you write a successful book. That came to me right away when I got back in America. It had nothing to do with writing, but just with being alive and and in this country with all the peaceful people and the sandwiches that you can get for like five dollars. You you pay them the five and they give you this beautiful sandwich. I was so delighted by all of that that I I cried when they when they touched me. Like if a, anybody came up to me on the street and touched me, I would just burst into tears. I'm a fan of Subway sandwiches too. <laughs> yes, I've, well, I've never been kidnapped. Um, <laughs> What was it like knowing that this journalistic establishment that you had butted up against in your own career was really instrumental Mm. in trying to secure your release? I mean, I was very moved and touched by um, all that they had done. I felt that they, I, when I was in prison, I was certain that they were like, that dumb idiot, who ever heard of him in the first place? And of course he overestimated his abilities to survive. And of course he wasn't prepared and he got what he deserved and goodbye. It turned out that many of these people were working behind the scenes to free me um, and like in, were in close touch with my families and doing everything they could. On the other hand, one of the first people that I wrote to when I got back was this journalist from the New York Times who um, named, named Chris Chivers, who, who um, interviewed my cellmate after the escape. And uh, after my cellmate escaped in July of 2013. My cellmate like, uh, and I worked on an escape and he was able to scramble out the window and I was not. And afterwards, um, the cellmate went off to talk to this guy's chivers. And in the hours after this escape, I told, I was able to persuade my captors that um, the cellmate had escaped on his own, that I had had nothing to do with his preparations. And in fact, I was against it. And I was banging on the cell door when he was in the act of crawling out the window, trying to summon the guard saying, look at this horrible America and he's trying to escape. Anyway, I was actually able to persuade them so that 
Um, they, they had beaten me a little bit after this escape, but two weeks after the escape, right about the time Chivers' article appeared, everything in my life was basically normal again. I had a nice cellmate. Things were going good in my cell. I had normal food, and the guards were decent to me. All right, after this article appeared, some of the most horrible terrorists in the whole world came into my cell, and they go, Amriki, Amriki, you American, come here. You lied to us. And I'm like, no, I didn't. And there followed six weeks of very intense um, torture in which I, I really came as close uh, to dying during those six weeks as I, as I ever did in my life. And um, anyway, when I got out of prison, I wrote to Chivers. I'm like, why did you write in the New York Times so that it could get on CNN so that the terrorists could discover that I had participated in this escape plan? Um, you know, I was bitter that this guy had not taken my own safety into account. My mom apparently had been in New York pleading with the New York Times, take this stupid article off your stupid website. And they wouldn't do it. Um, anyway, I mean, I, I, uh, I, you're asking about my feelings about the fellow journalists. Well, in that case, I think that they, I think this journalist wanted a good story and they didn't care about what was good for me. Or they didn't imagine that I might have been able to persuade the captors that I didn't have anything to do with this escape, which, in fact, I really did persuade them that I, I was, like, asleep, and he was crawling out the window, and I was, then I banged on the door, stupid American. They, it was a, a strange thing, because in this prison cell, the window was wide open. One guy was gone, and one guy was there, and they're like, well, what's this dude doing still here? Why didn't he crawl out? Well, I didn't crawl out because I couldn't fit myself. It was like a two, two people. You needed two people, one guy to push and one guy to scramble out the window. Um, and when, when Matt, my cellmate, uh, had, after he escaped, I was by myself. I couldn't do it. Um, but they couldn't figure that out. The captors, they're like, well, um, you know, probably, uh, probably the other guy just ran away and you know, they, they had to make up their explanation as best they could. And they assumed that he had done it by himself and um, I had been against it. Anyway. Is there still any sense of community or contact among you and the other people who survived and came back from these prisons? Well, yes, I'm in touch with all my, the Syrian cellmates that have survived. Um, I was in the prison in the summer of 2013 with about 25 um, officers from the Syrian army. They were like POWs. They'd been captured on the battlefield after their positions had been surrounded by um, Free Syrian Army people or Jebat al-Nusra or ISIS or all of them together. And um, the prisoners who were Alawites, that is uh, members of a Shia-esque minority in Syria, were given over to the Jebat al-Nusra terrorists and put in their prison. And those people appear... Um, to have been killed, um, not by the way for uh, any crime that they might have committed as a soldier, but for being Alawites. And um, anyway, so but but I could maybe out of those twenty five, maybe four have survived, and so I'm in touch with those four, and I'm trying to get them like places in the uh, colleges because they I'm trying to get them anything. They 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 um, in Syria, it's there's such a like a um, economic blockade on Syria that. They don't have money to heat the evening tea. They they need money for cucumbers and tomatoes in the evening, rice. And for you looking forward, uh, you mentioned a novel. Um, yeah. What's on your horizon? Well, when I was in prison, I was I wrote this book about an insurgency in America. And I imagined a kind of right-wing religious 
insurgency that proceeded along the methods and and um, like the psychological pattern of winning people over that uh, ISIS uses. So it's it's a novel about an ISIS-like insurgency that takes place in America, and um, that's what I'm working on now because I feel that uh, the way the Trump people took over the Capitol on January sixth has a it has a lot in common with the way things began in Syria too. It's like a lot of men with some wacky notions in their heads about how things, about the facts on the ground that really are just craziness and guns and pickup trucks and indignation and great economic injustice, incredible economic inequality in America and in Syria. And so some very legitimate grievances and yet some charlatans that are um, leading otherwise decent people down a very dangerous path. Something I've wanted to address on this show before, and this seems like a, a good time to, to talk mm. about it, which is um, you're actually not the first guest on this show who has <laughs> flown to a dangerous war location mm. with um, uh, three to low four figures in their bank account um, to see to see what happened. And uh, some of those people went on to win prestigious journalism awards and do great work. And I don't. I don't seek to in any way undermine that, but I do feel like it's important to bring up that there is a counter story to that kind of a story. And I guess I'm curious what you would say to someone who maybe was feeling the kind of urges you felt to just show up and, and go for it. And, and what advice you would give um, someone who was thinking about, um, you know, putting themselves physically in a place like Syria. Yeah, in, in a place like Syria, I just feel it's too dangerous at the moment. However, the world is full of places that need their stories told. I mean, there are continents and continents, and why not go out to some interesting place and discover what that place is like and why we should understand the details of how people live there. And um, of course, there's no money in this. It's like you could go to Nigeria or South Africa and pitch for years and years and years. You're going to make less than a thousand bucks. So it's not a, it, like a lot of these journalists who succeed, um, either they have incredible stick or they have some source of money that is not visible to the rest of us. You know, it's like, or some people obviously get there in legitimate ways, but in order to do something really creative, uh, personally, my strategy was if you are poor in, a, in the Arab world, you can understand a lot about that culture because most people are poor. And you you learn to like, um, eat in cheap restaurants or to eat, eat at people's houses or to take handouts. And I don't know, I just felt that that was an, um, I could discover the truth of how people really lived by living in their poverty. Is there anything that we didn't discuss that you feel like we should? Um, I don't know. There's a ton of stuff, but I'm appreciative that I'm able to discuss anything at all with you. I'm glad that, you know, next time we'll talk about the rest of it. There's tons of stuff. All right. We'll do that when your novel comes out. Okay. Right. Thank you. Yes. Perfect. Good idea. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Theo. <laughs> thank you for having me. I appreciate it. That was the long form podcast. Thanks very much for listening. I'm Aaron Lammer. 
My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. This episode was edited by Jackie Sajiko. Thanks to her. Thanks to our intern, Julianne Sato-Parker. Thanks to everyone over at MailChimp. And thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.